All right, Genesis chapter 24, verses 38 through 58. Um, uh, here we go. And this would be the um, servant who has been sent by Abraham to um, his relative's house to seek a bride for his son Isaac. And so we pick it up, verse 48, it says, And I bowed down my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord God of my master Abraham, which had led me in the right way to take my master's brother's daughter unto his son. And now, if ye will deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me, and if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing proceedeth from the Lord. We cannot speak unto thee bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before thee. Take her and go, and let her be thy master's son's wife, as the Lord hath spoken. And it came to pass that when Abraham's servant heard their words, he worshipped the Lord, bowing himself to the earth. And the servant brought forth jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment and gave them to Rebekah. He, he gave also to her brother and to her mother precious things. And they did eat and drink, and he and the men that were with him, and tarried all night, and they rose up in the morning, and he said, Send me away unto my master. And her brother and her mother said, Let the damsel abide with us a few days, at the least ten, after that she shall go. And he said unto them, Hinder me not, seeing the Lord hath prospered my way. Send me away, that I may go to my master. And they said, We will call the damsel, and inquire at her mouth. And they called Rebekah, and said unto her, Wilt thou go with this man? And she said, I will go. And this is the reading of God's word, and all his children said, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now that you will open up what things you would have us to learn here in Genesis 24 and also Matthew 13 in terms of the Christian walk. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, There's going to be some review today so we can appreciate um, what things have taken place spiritually here in Genesis 24 and how they apply to the Christian walk and to the Christian life. So last week, you'll recall, I spoke from Matthew chapter 25, where Jesus is set before us about as clear as can possibly be that he is the king of glory and that he is judge of all the earth. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So he is both fully God and fully man, and as fully God and fully man, he died for the sins of his people, whom Scripture refers to as sheep in Matthew 25, did not die for all the people, he did not die for the goats, but he died for all of his people. Now, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, I want us to appreciate what's written there. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, it says, speaking of Christ, actually I'll pick it up in verse 1, um, God who hath in sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. It's very clearly telling us here that Christ is the heir. He's going to inherit everything which he did through the, his death, burial, and resurrection, and also affirming again here that he's the one who made everything. Now, verse 3, it says, who, speaking of Christ, being the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, and we're going to talk about that again, he upholds everything by the word of his power, 
when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of his majesty on high. Christ by himself purged all of our sins, and then he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He rules and reigns from heaven, having overcome, conquering sin and death. Over in verse 8 of uh, Hebrews chapter 1, it says that unto the Son, Christ Jesus, God the Father says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Christ reigns forever. He is presently reigning right now, ruling and reigning over all the earth. Verse 13, it's God the Father said again, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So with respect to all of the foolishness we see in the world, we have to remember that Jesus is ruling and reigning all over all things, and he's going to subdue all things. Uh, all his enemies shall be his footstool. And that imagery comes from a conquering king putting his foot on the neck of the king he has conquered. So to be the footstool of Christ in that context is to be one who has been subdued and subjugated unto him who has his foot on your neck. Now, with these simple truths set before us that God is sovereign, he rules and reigns over everything, and that he has overcome sin and death by himself for the benefit of his people, and also keeping in mind Romans 8, 28, that all things, all things, Everywhere, at all times in history, whether or not you've been there or not, whether you know not or not what's going on in this world, all things at all times throughout history are working together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. So we can appreciate from that statement that God is not saying that all things have worked for the good of all people. It's only working for the good of those that love God, those who have a relationship with him, which they do, of course, through Christ Jesus. Those people God has called out of this world according to his purpose. Abraham is a perfect example of that. He was called out of the Ur of the Chaldees and brought down into what we know today to be called the promised land, although that's not really what was promised to him, but rather the cosmos from Romans chapter 4. So I want us to appreciate this morning some of the Christian struggles which are um, for our good. We struggle with these things, and they are for our good. Now, when you consider what's written in Matthew 13 and Genesis 24, these struggles start from the word go immediately. As soon as the gospel is preached to you, your struggles start. Uh, If you've been observant of a Christian baptismal, you know the old Christians look at there and go, and the person's all happy and excited going down and, you know, giving testimony and witness to their relationship with Christ, that he died and uh, was buried and resurrected for their benefit. But the old Christians go, okay, now the battle's on. Now trials, tribulations, um, persecutions are coming your way. And that's the way it is. So what we read in Matthew 13 and 24, we can appreciate that these begin as soon as the gospel is preached to you, and you will carry with these struggles um, from, uh, for the rest of your earthly life. Now, some of these trials and tribulations come from outside sources, and some come from within ourselves. And really, I want to hammer those or hit those a little bit harder today. Some of those struggles come within ourselves and how we deal with the world. In Matthew chapter 13, we're going to see both. In Genesis chapter 24, we'll see what appears to be well-meaning outside influences, um, but all of these serve to encumber your Christian walk and testimony. So let's look at Matthew chapter 13, verse 
uh, first. I'm going to go back to Matthew chapter um, 13 and verse 18. So we're going to start there and look at it again. And I want you to appreciate, as I'm reading this here, that these peoples are grouped into four different groups. So four different groups. And the Lord is explaining it here. Hear ye therefore the parable of the sower. When one heareth the wheat, sowing the seed is, and we made reference to that even this morning, planting a seed. Sowing the, the uh, a seed is, is, uh, is likened unto preaching the word. So when anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. This is he that receiveth seed by the way seed. Now, that's really fairly simple. Um, we can appreciate that as soon as somebody hears the word, that Satan's all over this poor fellow and wants to try to snatch away the truth that was preached unto this person. So um, somebody might come and ridicule what things you have heard. Somebody might come to try to replace the truth with a lie. There's various ways that this takes place in the lives of these people, and I think we've observed this and seen this. When we're preaching the gospel, if it's preached properly, we're telling the people that they are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and what would Satan come and do? And you'd say, well, you know, grace um, is, yeah, it's grace, but there's also works in there. There are things that you have to do to merit and warrant God's um, favor. And so uh, it might not necessarily be in Christ alone. You might have, have to have faith in other things as well. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to supplant the truth, exchange the truth, uh, into a lie. And so Satan is the author of lies. He was a liar from the beginning, the Lord tells us, and a murderer. And so they'll begin to offer competing views, trying to replace the truth um, with a lie that maybe it's uh, works or maybe it's works plus grace. And so all of these things, of course, are foolishness and it's endeavoring to snatch the seed that was of truth that was sown by somebody preaching the gospel. Now the next group here we find in verse 20, but he that receiveth the seed into a stony place the same as he that heareth the word, and anon with joy receive it. So the gospel has been preached to them. They're pretty excited about what things they've heard, and they um, are joyful about it. Yet hath he not root in himself, but dureth for a while. For when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, by and by he is offended. I think every Christian has suffered from this one. And uh, you would suffer it when people start to come after you and uh, let's say they uh, make fun of you because you're a Christian. Oh, you don't really believe that, do you? And so you might have been initially excited about preaching Christ or talking about Christ. And most Christians are when they first apprehend the gospel. They, they're excited about it and they want to talk to everybody in their family about it. But then they begin to suffer for ridicule because of what they're preaching and they turn inward and they stop sharing the word. So that's fairly common. So they begin, that begins to shut them up. Then we've got the next group here in verse 22. He also that receiveth seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word and the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becometh unfruitful. So I want you to appreciate this one really comes from within. This is really your and my fault completely. It's because it's the care of the world. It's because we don't have our eyes fixed on Christ. It's because we're thinking about what's going on in the world and what impact it might have on us or that we begin to suspect whether or not Christ is on the throne. I mean, how can there be so much mayhem going on and Christ is not uh, in it? And so if I'll bring this straight home to us, um, I don't know what things you thought about the Ukraine war, but when it broke out, I mean, I was told that there was going to be global famine, that we were not going to be able to get fertilizer, and so farming production would go way down, and as a result of that, uh, there would be a lack of food supply, 
Um, I was told that there'd be a lack of energy supply because of the oil pipelines or the gas pipelines that go through Ukraine. Um, told we weren't going to be able to have cars because we couldn't get the parts for the cars that are run by computers that are made over there. So um, the world just threw all sorts of foolish concerns and cares our direction. And the intent, of course, is to take your eyes off of Christ, place them on the world, and make you think that perhaps Jesus is not in control. So in addition to that, we have all of these political turmoils going on, not only in our country, but all over the world. And so we find ourselves fretting about political incompetence and military incompetence. And when we get bogged down in those things, the Bible says here, he becometh unfruitful. He was fruitful, but now he's become unfruitful. So you see in these four different groups here, it's bookended by somebody obviously who's not a Christian. It's, uh, Satan has snatched the world, the word away. And then verse 23, it's somebody who understands the word and bears much fruit. That's pretty obvious. It's the two in the middle here that we go, are these guys Christians? And I would suggest to you that they are indeed Christians. They're just the first one's been shut up by persecution. And the second one has shut himself up because he's taken his eyes off of uh, the Lord and put them on the world. Now, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 34, the Lord tells us, take no thought for the morrow. We ought not to be worried whether or not the Ukrainian war is going to affect whether or not I'm going to be able to eat spaghetti or not. Take no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take care of thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. So he says, hey, just take care of what's on your plate today. Just be concerned about what's going on today. Don't worry about tomorrow. The Lord promises us in many places that he'll take care of us. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. Philippians 4, verse 6 says, Be careful for nothing, full of care, be thoughtful. Don't let these things get your thinking bogged down. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. That's when you'll have the peace of God, which patheth all understanding, because you don't let yourself be careful for things. In Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6, I know we know all this one. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Our understanding is directed to a large degree by what um, news feed we watch, what information is set before us, or what information we set before ourselves. You know, I gave the example of the Ukraine. I mean, I've got this YouTube algorithm, which is sending me all of this um, this fearful news about how I'm not going to be able to eat next week because of what's going on over in, in Ukraine. And none of it, none of it has come true. It was just wasted energy and did nothing uh, to strengthen my faith in Christ. Did nothing. So to worry about the world and fret about those things, the Bible is telling us is to become unfruitful and we don't want to be unfruitful servants. That's a very bad thing. So to be that way is to walk like an unbeliever as though God is not on the throne and orchestrating all worldly events for our good. So it's to get bogged down and think about and things we ought not to think. Now, the scripture says we ought not to speak evil of dignitaries. We ought not to speak the evil of dignitaries. We should appreciate that it was God who put these people on the throne. We have this idea that we have an elective process by which we put people in the Oval Office, but we don't really. God is the one who puts people in office. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, Colossians 1, 16, it says, For by him, that would be Christ, for by him were all things created that are in heaven 
and that are in earth, visible and invisible. He's created everything. They were created by him and for him. Now, whether they be thrones, he has created all thrones. That means our form of government was created by Christ for his benefit. Whether it be a dictatorship, that was created by God. Democracy, dictatorship, monarchy, it doesn't matter. It was created by God. Whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. God created all of these political uh, entities, and he has put people in office to suit him, people for his good. In Daniel chapter 17, God teaches Nebuchadnezzar a lesson. And in Daniel chapter 4, verse 17, the um, point to be understood by Nebuchadnezzar was this, that the Most High, that's God Almighty, the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomever he will and setteth up over it the basest of men. Wouldn't you think that God would put benevolent and loving and leaders full of wisdom, you would think that. He does occasionally. He did that with respect to David, but generally he doesn't. He puts the basest of men on the throne, and we have seen that in our lifetimes um, time again. So he puts whoever he will on the throne, and in Romans chapter 13, first couple of verses there, he reminds us of that, that not only has he put these people on the throne, but guess what? We're supposed to obey him. In uh, Romans 13, verse 1, he says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. There's no wiggle room there. He put Biden in the Oval Office, and he put Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, in that office when he subjected himself to Pontius Pilate. And he tells him that. What power you have has been given to you from above. He had the power to crucify him or set him free, and he says, guess what? The power came from my Father in heaven. God is reminding us that in Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive unto themselves damnation. So God is telling us, I put that base man, on the throne, and you are to obey him. If you don't obey them, you are rebelling not against him, but you're rebelling against God Almighty. Now, I'm going to give you a caveat with that because we know that we don't do anything that contradicts or conflicts with the Bible because Christ is king over all, and I'm going to get to this in a minute. We are ambassadors. We work for him, and all governments are subordinate to Christ, so we're not going to take Jews and put them in ovens and kill them. We're not going to do that. There's lots of things we're not going to do because the Bible would not have us do those things. But generally speaking, you're going to have to pay your taxes. You have to obey every ordinance of man. You've got to obey these people. To not obey them means that you are in rebellion against God. So what do we do? We do what the Lord tells us to do in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And he says in 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, he says, I exhort thee, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Whether you like these people or not, that's what we're supposed to do. Verse 2, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all goodness and honesty. 
I don't care if Nero's burning Rome down. I just want to live in peace and worship the Lord. That's my prayer. You know, Lord, we just want to live. And that's what he's telling you to pray for. So we would live in peace and worship him. So burn the house down. Knock yourself out. Um, I will pray for you. And I will pray with the, with the intent that you and I would enjoy peace and liberty and be able to um, um, worship in peace. Now, again, God has put all of these people on the throne. I did a quick research last night. I was curious how many assassination plots were there against Adolf Hitler. They came up with 42, and they had several places in there and said, and there was really a lot more. We just don't have them all documented. 42 attempts to kill Hitler's life, none of them successful. Why were they not successful? Because God put him on the throne, and he was going to stay in that office until God was done with him. When God was done with him, how was his life taken? He shot himself. He removed himself from the office by um, taking his own life. God was done with him, and so there he took his own life. Um, We think to ourselves, boy, if he'd been killed, World War II might have had a different end. It was not ordained by God to end until God had done whatever he was going to do to Europe and to the world. Only then would it end. Amos 3, 6 asks the question, can there be evil in the city and the Lord's hath not done it? Can there be evil in the city and the Lord hath not done it? The answer is no. There cannot be evil in the city without the Lord's hand in it. He's the one who brought um, the Babylonians down to destroy Jerusalem, and then he brought the Medo-Persians to destroy the Babylonians, and then he brought the Greeks to destroy them, and then he brought the Romans to destroy them. He is orchestrating all political events for his glory, and he is bringing kings and moving them. Think about King David versus King Saul. King Saul, God ordained and put on the throne. King David had several opportunities to kill him, but never would lay a hand against him because he knew God had put him on the throne. How did Saul's reign end? He fell on his sword and killed himself. Same thing. What you see in the Bible, you see out in the real world because if you want to know what's going on in the world, you just need to read the Bible and apply those truths out there. So God puts the basest of man on the throne, whether it be Biden, Xi Jinping, Kim Sung Jun. Stalin, any of these people, God is the one who puts them on the throne. Now, one of the reasons we get so excited about what's going on and we get upset by it because of our nationalistic sense of pride. Once upon a time, the United States seemed like a righteous nation, but God is done with us just like he finished with the Babylonians. Isaiah chapter 3, which we have talked about here during the fellowship meal in the past, Isaiah chapter 3, this is exactly what God has done in this country. He's doing it right now as we speak. For behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, doth take away from Jerusalem and from Judah, or from the United States, or from Germany, or from Babylon, or pick your country. He takes away the stay and the staff, Isaiah chapter 3, verse 1. Takes away the stay and the staff, the whole stay of bread, and the whole stay of water. He takes away, I'm reading into it, it just says the mighty man and the man of war. He takes away the mighty man, he takes away the man of war. The judge and the prophet and the prudent and the ancient. The captain of 50, the honorable man and the counselor, and the cunning artificer and the eloquent orator. God takes away all of these people that uh, might normally lead a country in ways of righteousness, might lead a country with wisdom, might lead a country in, in, uh, through their great military strength. He has pulled the rug out from underneath this country, and surely we can all see that. And I want us to appreciate that it's because God has done it. Now, think about Afghanistan. We were there 20 years. 
$300 million a day is what that costs. You don't think this country is going to suffer because of that? We did not withdraw from Afghanistan. It was not a retreat. We fled. In 10 days, that war was over, and the country had turned over and was back in the hands of the Afghanis. The Russians um, had their tail handed to them. I can't think how the expression goes. You know, they didn't do well over there either. God worked with them too, and um, they were in Afghanistan a very long time. So we fled. It was not a retreat. It was not a withdrawal. Two trillion dollars is what that war cost. We left them food. We left them money. We left them supplies, and we left them weapons. We armed those peoples, what we did. Now, is that new? Um, let me think. Second Kings chapter 7 was the occasion when the Syrians were um, besieged around Samaria. There was no hope that the Samarians would um, win that siege. As a matter of fact, things were so bad and difficult for them there, they had engaged in cannibalism. Um, they were literally starving to death. And then one night, God turned that around and sent the Syrians packing uh, back home. Um, they thought they heard the Hittites and the Egyptians coming, and they were uh, so afraid they fled, and they left food, money, supplies, and weapons in the hand of the Sumerians. They armed them and um, empowered them and strengthened them militarily. They brought all those supplies there. That's what we did to the Afghanis. We brought all the supplies there. If we tore the place up, we left them food supply, uh, money, and weapons. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 9 says, The thing that hath been is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done, and there is no new thing under the sun. Again, you want to know what's happening in our country? Just read what God did to humble the nation in the Bible because it's happening and we've got to let it go because we are ambassadors for Christ. This is not our country. This is not our country. We are Christians and our um, country is in heaven. Just like it says in uh, Hebrews chapter 11 about Abraham sought a country. If he had opportunity to return to his original country, he would have, but he didn't because he sought a city whose builder and maker is God a city which hath foundations. My city is the heavenly Jerusalem, and it's got the foundations, and those foundations are built on Christ. Christ himself is the foundation. That's the city that I'm heading to. So in the meantime, while I'm here, we are all ambassadors for Christ. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verses 19 and 20 talks about that. We are ambassadors for Christ. It's an office, it's an office which we engage in by the preaching of the gospel to the world. And we preach the gospel to not just people in the United States, because again, we happen to live here, but this is not our home. It's not just people who agree with us politically. You know, we wouldn't walk past a house that's got um, a political sign that we don't agree with, but we're to preach it to every creature. Um, we will preach the gospel, or to preach the gospel to whomever the Lord sends to us, or to whomever the Lord sends us to. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, it says that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us, committed unto the church, committed unto Christians, the word of reconciliation, which means we preach the gospel. And this we do as ambassadors. Our king is in heaven, and that is King Jesus. We talked about that last week in Isaiah 9, 7. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, it speaks of Christ. It says, "...of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end." 
There is no end to his dominion or his authority. He is our king, and we worship him, and we serve him as ambassadors. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 says to us, our conversation is in heaven. That means that's our focus, that's our heart, that's our governmental administration is in heaven. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. When he comes, he's coming from heaven. And in the book of Acts, the angels say that to the um, apostles that watched the Lord go up into glory. He said, they says, hey, he's coming back. Just like you see him leave, that's how he's coming back. So we keep looking up. So if it had been 1944 and you'd been looking up, you might have seen some Japanese balloons drifting across the western part of the U.S. because they put incendiary bombs on balloons and were hoping to burn up you know, the west coast. And so you might have seen a balloon. They actually killed um, six people up in Oregon when the bombs went off when they came down. So 1944, if you'd been looking up, you might have seen some Japanese balloons. 1957, if you'd been looking up, you might have seen Sputnik, the Russian low-orbit satellite drifting over the Earth, and that caused a lot of consternation. Earlier this year, if you'd looked up, you might have seen a Chinese balloon drifting over the U.S. All of these things are none of these things. They're not our concern. I just think to myself, what are those knuckleheads doing now? I don't care. Fight over it. You want to take over the Titanic? Knock yourself out, because it's not going to get to where you think it's going to get. It's going to sink. These are not our concerns because we are ambassadors for Christ. We are the salt and the light of this world whom the Lord will intends to sprinkle around the world and put you on the top of a hill and not underneath a bushel so that we might bear fruit. So if we get bogged down in what's going on in this world, we are, are going to become fruitful. And so Matthew chapter 13 there kind of sets up the things that um, Christians face and would be cause you to become unfruitful. And so um, with that, we think to ourselves, is that all? No, that's not all. There are some more things um, that cause us to get bogged down. Um, some things are overt and quite obvious, and we know that the Bible teaches us that the world hates Christians because it hates God, and so there's an uh, animosity between the world and the Christian, which begins right out of the starting gate. Genesis chapter 4, Cain kills Abel. Right from the starting gate, there's murder and mayhem um, and persecution against the Christian by his brother. So Cain kills his Christian brother. Now, a lot of the opposition against the Christian is subtle. It's not so easy to see. It's more difficult to see and to avoid. And we saw that in Genesis chapter 3 where it says that uh, Satan is more subtle than any beast of the field. His, uh, Satan comes as a... Um, angel of light and his ministers as ministers of righteousness. So sometimes it's not so easy to see the hindrances and the snares that are set before the Christian. And that takes us back to Genesis chapter 24. Back in Genesis chapter 4 and 24, we are going to see that Laban represents the opposition um, that is set before a Christian, but it doesn't look like opposition, but it is. It's subtle. It looks like he's solicitous to the Christian, but he's ever engaging in activities to entangle the Christian and keep them from separating themselves from the world unto Christ. So by way of review here, in the historical context, it's about the year 1950 B.C., before Christ. Abraham has sent his servant to seek a wife for his son. And this model is the Trinitarian God. Just as God the Father 
sends God the Holy Ghost into the world to find a bride, which is the church, for God the Son. That is Jesus. Rebecca represents the church. She represents the Christian. Now, we saw that the servant traveled a great distance to go find a bride for the Son. That's like the Holy Ghost coming from heaven to the earth. And so the servant finds a bride. He finds Rebecca which he will then take back to the place from whence he came and present the bride to the son Isaac. In like manner, the Holy Ghost comes down from heaven, finds Christians to take back to heaven where we will ever be present with the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is our husband. So there's the parallels here ought to be fairly clear to us between what the Trinitarian God does in this world and what is taking place here in Genesis chapter 24. Now, if you look at um, Psalm 45, you can see a parallel in Psalm 45 what the Lord is teaching us with respect to what happens to Rebekah. It's, it's the same thing. So in Psalm 45... I'll pick it up in verse 10, Psalm 45, verse 10. It says, Hearken, O daughter, that would be the Christian, that would be the saint. Hearken, O daughter, and consider and incline thine ear. Forget also thine own people. Forget the people of the world. Forget the people that you've come from. Forget them and thy father's house. Forget your family, your close relatives. Forget about um, the house that you've been in and forget about the world. Verse 11, so shall the king, that would be Christ, so shall the king greatly desire thy beauty. Remember I mentioned to you how that the Christian is typically presented in the scriptures as fair to look upon. She's usually beautiful. So shall the king greatly desire thy beauty, for he is thy Lord, and worship thou him. Forget about the world. Fix your eyes on Christ. Verse 12, and the daughter of Tyre, that would be the Gentiles, they're also going to come into this relationship, and the daughter of Tyre shall be there with a gift. Even the rich among the people shall entreat thy favor. People that are rich in grace that has been given to them by Christ. Verse 13, the king's daughter, again, that's the Christian, is all glorious within. She's got a new heart. Stony heart's been taken out and a heart of flesh put in. The king's daughter is all glorious. Her clothing is wrought of gold. Imagine that, having cold with, um, clothes with gold um, um, fabric in it. Not fabric, not the word, thread. Gold threads in it. Again, I've shared with you, I've been reading some um, uh, medieval-ish um, historical novels. They're historically correct novels, and the author will describe the clothing, and it's not uncommon to have gold interwoven in the fabric, and that's what the Lord is speaking about here. It's a glorious thing, and you should appreciate that gold typifies the glory of God. It is a noble element. It does not uh, corrupt or tarnish. So this is what the woman is dressed up with. Her clothing is wrought of gold. She shall be brought unto the king in raiment of needlework, the virgins, her companions, that would be fellow saints. Remember, we'll be all being presented as a chaste virgin unto the Lord. Uh, her comp- uh, the virgins, her companions that follow her shall be brought unto thee. With gladness and rejoicing shall they be brought. They shall enter into the king's palace. And so the bride is going to be brought, ad- admissed, uh, 
pageantry and glory and presented to the king, her husband, and there's going to be great rejoicing in there. So we see this parallel here when we look at Genesis chapter 24 taking place with respect to Rebekah, what things the servant is placing on her. In verse 22, we see that um, he places on her, this would be the servant places on Rebekah, a golden earring and two bracelets of her hands uh, of 10 shekels weight of gold. So he's putting gold on this woman. Just give her a little bit. This is an earnest deposit, which, of course, we as Christians have received when we've received the Holy Ghost. So she's got an earnest deposit. And then over in verse 53, it says, And the servant brought forth jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment and gave them to Rebekah. So he's dressing up Rebekah, beautifying her, making her glorious in appearance so that when she's presented to Isaac, the king's son, she'll be um, very beautiful to him. And so it is for all Christians. The Lord cleans us up. He's taken our sins off of us and he's imputed the righteousness of God to us. And so he dresses us up and cleans us up. Um, it is God who has taken the righteousness of Christ and put it onto us, Christ who had never sinned and was ever righteous and glorious. And he imputes his righteousness and accounts it unto us. Now, all of these are blessed spiritual truths that are set forth in a way uh, that the Lord has acting them out in the lives of these people here. And so it symbolizes the spiritual realities of what has taken place in our lives. Rebecca is being gifted with that which will render her beautiful in the eyes of her husband. Now, I've referred to Isaiah 61.10 many times because it fits perfectly what happens here, and it uses language that helps us appreciate salvation. In Isaiah 61.10, it says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. That's you and me. We will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in the Lord. That's just what we read in, in Psalm 45. The individual that's brought to the king is, is rejoicing. For he, that would be God the Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost, that would be Abraham's servant, he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. We're being covered with the glory of Christ as a bridegroom decketh with ornaments, as a bride adorneth with her jewels. Now, don't read the italicized words because it sounds like the, the bride is dressing herself. She's not. She's being dressed by Christ. That's what's taking place in Genesis here. Rebecca's being dressed by the servant, the Holy Ghost. We are dressed by um, the Holy Ghost. He cleans us up and is going to present us to Christ in a glorious um, garments of salvation and a robe of righteousness. So all of these things represent the things that God has done to prepare us for himself, for eternal fellowship with him. And it works itself out. It is working itself out in the lives of Abraham, his servant, Isaac, and Rebekah. God is clearly setting the gospel before us in what's happening in their lives and in her family. Now, everything is going really well. It's looking good until it's time to leave. And that's when Rebecca's mother and her brother Laban, in verse 55, try to put the brakes on things. In verse 50 and 51, we see that Laban and his father had already agreed to let her go. Behold, Rebekah is before thee. Take her and go and let her be thy master's son's wife, as the Lord hath spoken. They've already agreed to let her go, 
In verse 53, a dowry was paid, and we should appreciate that that dowry that was paid was the life of Christ. We were bought with a price. We're not our own. This is a mix-up for us in the Western world because in the Western um, culture, the bride pays for the wedding. But that's not how it works in other countries, and that's not how it had worked in other countries. In the Middle East, it's the groom who pays for everything, and that's what the Bible is. Christ, our groom, paid for the bride. He paid the dowry, and the dowry he paid was his life. So uh, we can see the gospel in the way wedding nuptials are given and the way a wedding is brought to fruition. The groom pays. So the dowry has been paid for Rebecca. They've already agreed to let her go, and so... Now the brakes are put on. Now that it's time to go, Laban and the mother want her to remain for an indefinite period of time. I don't know what your translations say, but when you, the word day is the word yam, which means a period. It's only when it's buttoned up against an ordinal number that you would know it to be literal 10 days. So he's saying here at least 10 periods. It's an indefinite period. How long is it going to be? How long is she going to stay there? We don't really know. The Lord usually uses the number 10, 100, and 1,000 to represent completeness. You know, the millennial reign, a thousand years. Uh, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. It's not limiting to a thousand, obviously. It just represents completeness or a period. So they want her to stay here an indefinite period of time. Now, Laban's got eyes for nothing but the gold and the money that was uh, given to his sister. We see that over in verse um, 28, as soon as uh, Rebecca runs to the mother's house and share these things, and then it says... Um, Laban sees it, verse 30, and when it came to pass, when Laban saw the earring and bracelets upon his sister's hands, not when he's heard what's happening, but when he sees the jewelry, uh, then um, he spake to the man and says, well, yes, come thou and blessed of the Lord, and why standest thou without? I have prepared the house and room for the camels. Verse 31, in other words, come on in, <laughs> come on in and bring more of that jewelry. So now it's time for her to go, and they don't want to let her go. And so it is for a new Christian. A new Christian, your family would hold you back. Uh, though they might like the changes they see in you because of your Christianity, nevertheless, they would have you remain with them spiritually. When a person becomes a Christian, God gives them a new heart. Um, so when they leave their hand, they're leaving the fa- when they leave their family, they're leaving the family emotionally and they're leaving the family spiritually. Um, they have different priorities, the Christian. They have different affections. They have a different heart. And um, after time, they will, above all things else, they will love God. That will become the first priority in their life. Um, and that causes a problem in a domestic family relationship. Now, Laban is going to do this again. He does it here. He tries to keep them from going. And he does it again in Genesis chapter 31, verses 20 through 27. And now it's the next generation. Jacob has gone to seek a bride for himself. And when he gets there, um, he would leave. He comes a great distance to seek a wife, and uh, Laban keeps entangling him to keep him from leaving with his wives. Finally, Jacob departs without telling Laban that he is leaving. So in Genesis 31, you pick it up in verse 20, and it says, And Jacob stole away, unawares to Laban the Syrian, and that he told him not that he had fled. So you get all the way down there, and then Laban catches up with him. You get to verse 27. Um, I pick it up 26. And Laban said unto Jacob, What hast thou done that thou hast stolen away, unawares to me, and carried away my daughters as captives taken with the sword? 
Wherefore didst thou flee away secretly and steal away from me and didst not tell me that I might have sent thee away with mirth and with songs and tabaret and with harp. He's another hypocrite here. For 20 years, Laban, through deception, has kept Jacob from leaving. He's put one obstacle in front of him after another. And so it is. Laban here would try to throw a great celebration in front of him. You know, let's get you all caught up in the world again. Let's, uh, let's get you drunk. Let's, get, uh, let's satiate the lust of your flesh. You know, let's keep you from leaving. That's what Laban would seek to do. And you're going to find your family is going to try to do things like that too. They're going to try to make um, their world more appealing than the world that the Lord has called you to. So the family ever tries to draw the Christian back. They don't understand that you're a different person that you are a new creature in Christ and old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So in summary, what I would have us appreciate this morning is the opposition that the Christians face, particularly new Christians. Um, Those that have just received the word and are being taught the gospel Immediately, Satan brings on opposition. They immediately struggle with that, trying to snatch the world, uh, the word away. And this we learn from Matthew 13. And then there's external issues that come up with uh, people uh, begin to persecute us because we're Christians, and so we turn inward and we stop sharing the gospel. Or also internally, we get caught up in the cares and the concerns of this world. Um, and start chasing after money, start chasing after the glory of the world instead of the glory of Christ. It says here that we become unfruitful. God says you become unfruitful, and that is 100% our fault because we can turn around to the king of glory at any moment of time and contemplate and meditate on him. And then finally we get to Genesis 24 here, and we see that our families, while they might embrace what blessings accompany Salvation And Laban does say that. He says, I know that for your sake, I've been blessed. <laughs> I don't want you to go because I know that I've been blessed because of you. So they might like that part. Um, they like your uh, improved character and, and nature. Um, they like the fact that we're more disciplined and diligent about the work that we do. Nevertheless, they would hinder us from spiritually leaving them and embracing Christ as our one true love and serving him. So let us be mindful of what things the Lord has set before us this morning, that our Christian walk would bear much fruit and bring glory to the Lord and peace and joy to our hearts. Amen.